Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. So today on Habits and Hustle, we have Stephen Kotler. Stephen is an American author, journalist, and entrepreneur. He's best regarded as one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. While best known for his work on flow, Stephen also writes about the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness in optimizing performance. He is also the founder of the Flow Research Collective, a research and training organization. The mission of the Flow Research Collective is to understand the science behind ultimate human performance and use it to train up individuals and organizations. His newest book is called The Art of Impossible, and we discuss that and all his other findings on how you can become the ultimate optimized human. Enjoy like I did. You have a lot of books behind you. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I've got more. I mean, like it, it's worse. It just goes on and on and on. And here's the crazy part. Wow. This is my office. It's not even my library. Are you joking? I'm not. So you actually have a library? Yeah, I do. I've legitimately got a library. When I was growing up, when I was a little kid, my neighbor had this tiny little library. I was a book fiend from a little kid on. He had a tiny little library in his house. I mean, it was a closet, really, that he had turned into a library. I loved it. And I used to go in there and, and work. Um, and so I always wanted one. So, yeah, I've got my offices lined, my books, and my library. I have a little library. Wow. Because, you know, my next, my, I was going to say to you, it looks like a library from behind, like just behind you. So, uh, how many Maybe, books do you, No, go ahead. Do, how many books do I have? Do well, you think? I was going to. I was going to ask you, how many books can do you read a week? That was my first thing I was going to ask you. Um, it depends. Obviously, it depends. on It, it really depends. If I'm, if I'm reading neuroscience, it's going slower, right? The neuroscience right. textbooks. And I read a lot of textbooks. So I tend to read one. I'll read a novel a week, and I'll probably read a science book a week as well. So probably two books a week, I would guess. Um, wow. Sometimes more. Sometimes, and then every now and again, I'll stumble onto a science book that'll take me a, a month or something like that. Um, but I, I tend to read about 100, 150 books a year. And what are, you, like, what are you reading right now? Like, what are the two books you're reading this week? You're going to laugh. <laughs> it's the Cambridge Handbook of Imagination. Oh, Which, by the way, okay. here's what's amazing about this book. This is, I have to talk about this book for half a second because it's so cool. Unlike every other textbook I've ever read, they actually bothered to go around the world. So like I read this morning, I was reading an essay on Hindu and Vedic interpretations of what is imagination in ancient Hindu and Vedic traditions and how did they think about it? And it was just fascinating. I, like I would never stumble upon that, but it was fascinating. No. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading that and I'm reading a book called Thin Air, which is the new uh, Richard K. Morgan book, who's the guy who wrote Altered Carbon, which they made into a Netflix show. Um, yeah. He's a really dark cyberpunk future writer. So I guess you, you becoming a journalist kind of, you came by it honestly. Like that was kind of like the, oh, I was a, <laughs> I, I'm not, I mean, I know I, it, it came by it dishonestly. I'm trained as a poet. <laughs> I was, I'm a poet uh, through college. My senior thesis in college was an epic poem that was 110 pages. And after it was done, we realized it was a very mediocre epic poem, but it might make a good novel. And so I rebooted it. It became my first novel 
Um, and then I, so then I became a fiction writer. I'm actually, my master's is in creative writing um, and I'm a novelist. And I fell into journalism because how the hell do you pay the bills when you're writing novels? Because novels right. don't pay bills. And, um, it, and it turned out journalism was a much, it was, I'm naturally curious. I yeah. have, I'm not intimidated by anybody. So like talking truth to power and asking hard questions, like the, none of that bothered yeah. me. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was, and I, you know, and I, and long form journalism, it turns out to, um, it was a great place to learn to write. Um, yeah. In a, in a sense. So, you know, I got, uh, I got the greatest writing education in the history of the universe, right? I was taught essentially like, you know, taught to be a journalist by a hundred of the smartest editors in the history of the universe. Um, it was amazing. Where was your first, like, well, actually, what was your biggest and best uh, job as a journalist? Like, where, where was your favorite? Uh, so. Like, the best story you've done? The, the best, uh, interesting. Uh, I, people would argue the most famous story I, I did was a Wired magazine cover story. It was on the first artificial vision implant. So, the very first time a blind oh. person went from, I can't see, I've been blind for 20 years both eyes to I'm driving a car around a parking lot because there's a thing in my head in two days. And I, so I was in the, that was what I covered, right? The art of impossible is about uh, those moments impossible. So I had a yeah. list, I had a list of 37 sci-fi technologies that I was tracking and I thought they were all going to become science fact. And so anytime one of them did, I tried to be there and I tried to write about it. And that's a lot of what I did for a very long time. Um, on the like non-sports side of the work I do in Art of Impossible, right? Like, right. It was those things. So that story was particularly amazing. I think the best story I did, um, and nobody, it's in my book, Tomorrowland. It actually opens my book, Tomorrowland. Um, is the story about of uh, the first bionic soldier, the first soldier to receive a bionic body part. He got a, uh, it was a bionic ankle. And I told the story of both the man who created it, Hugh Hare, who's the head of biomechatronics at MIT, but he was literally one of the world's greatest rock climbers, lost both of his legs, became the world's greatest paraplegic rock climber, then decided that the technology itself was broken, not the, that he wasn't broken, his technology was broken and became a bionicist and created the world's first bionic body part. And the soldier who ended up with the body part. His story was equally crazy. He was Major David Roselle. They called him Cowboy Six. He was like a total gunslinger in the middle of the Iraqi war. He was famous for being like, find me the worst spot in Iraq. Send it. And he would go in and within a year, like he didn't just calm places down. He would calm places down and then put women on the city council. And like, like oh, he wow. was like a true like light bearer for democracy. And these two came together. That's what makes a great story. A great story is the journalism is whatever you have to get. If you can find the intersection of two or three colossal, the, the artificial vision implant too. The doctor was a maverick lunatic who was totally outside of, you know, out working out. Nobody liked him. Nobody <laughs> they thought he was crazy. He was working in a illegal lab in New York um, that he was, was, couldn't do the research in America and he was doing it anyways. And his patient was this crazy musician named Jens who had paid for his $100,000 surgery by teaching himself classical piano and giving Chopin concerts blind. 
like blind, lives in the North Woods in Canada, built his own house, delivered all his own babies, taught himself blind to be a master, raised $100,000 giving piano. Like that, that's what makes a great story. Right? Oh my gosh, so, that's an amazing story, actually. Yeah. So this I, the, I, journalism, I mean, the writing is a large part of it, but it, the truth of the matter is on the other end of 30 years of it, I can tell you that what is real is the, the the knowing when you've got two or three great stories and they hit together, yeah. that that that's what really leads to a great story. So it's le- I think it's less about the actual. I mean, this I can write and, and, and whatever, um, but it's getting absolutely lucky with that. Um, and I, that's happened. There's like seven of those over the course of my career. Um, and then you have to, the story itself has to, like one of the greatest stories I ever wrote, Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam. Oh my God, of course. Well, Heidi tried to open a brothel in Nevada for women. So male hookers. And like she went up against, like she went to war in Nevada to try to do this because they flipped out. I and, remember this a little bit. This was like, well, how many I, years ago are we oh talking? Oh God, like, like, 90, 2006, like tw- five. Right in there. I wrote it. So yeah. I, I wrote a story for the LA uh, Weekly. It won a bunch of awards called the Heidi Chronicles. And it was literally like I went, I, I drove from LA to Vegas with Heidi. We never made it because her car exploded, actually caught fire in the middle of the freeway. I mean, like it was the craziest thing you've ever seen. We met, there was a brothel war going on. We met brothel spies in Nevada. It was like, it was literally like I just walked into Oz as if Oz was being directed by all the right. It was crazy, crazy. And it involved, I, I still remember being driving down the freeway with Heidi Flies. I'm in the front seat of this beat up truck. Her dogs are in the back. She's driving. I'm here. My photographer, this crazy Irishman, Christopher McCann is sitting here. And Heidi's, there's, we're in rush hour traffic on the 405. And her hood is in flames. I mean, like flames are shooting out of the hood. And Heidi's like, she's over there. She's trying to pretend it's not happening. She's like, no, no, it'll be fine. I mean, it's just a little smoke. And finally, like Chris, who's the calmest, like he's, I've been in war zones with this dude and nothing phases him. <laughs> and he just sort of like leans forward and looks over at her. He's got a big mohawk. He's this skinny punk rock Irish when he just looks at her and goes, lady, pull the fuck over. <laughs> the thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So, probably not podcast material, but fun journalism stories. Oh, absolutely! No, it's great. Whatever happened to Heidi? Is she like what? Like, what is she doing I don't now? Know. I have no idea. She was an. I'm, she was an interesting. Um, I knew a lot of people who almost like I. You know exactly. I, I know what created a Heidi. Like it's you meet her and you're like, oh, I know, I know you. I know exactly how you got here and where you came from and what happened. Like it yeah. makes total sense. Um, really? Yeah. And so what, did, did, so, happened, what happened to her brothel? It never you, happened. Are you, it, they shut it down. Yeah, figured. They shut it down. They, they, they didn't. Um, I, Nevada is ready for, you know, women bro- brothels for women. It was, it was the combination of Heidi and the idea that it was just too much. I live in Nevada and it's a outlaw state. It's great in that way. Like really don't, don't regulate on the body. You right, know what I mean? Right. That kind of stuff. But um, Heidi was too noisy, right? The broth, like yeah. these are respected industries yeah, yeah. in the sense they're part of culture and Heidi was noisy and that was their problem. 
more than yeah. more, more than the what it meant sexuality wise. I thought that was what always the feeling I got. I would imagine like you could just do an like an like a by an autobiography of yourself, you know, like it, the stories that you must have just in terms of like the stories, like the the life experiences that you've kind of have yourself just from what you've covered and what you know, even when as a I, I read about how you would follow all these extreme athletes into like danger basically without having any kind of knowledge of the sport, right? And that's how you became. You, 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 it wasn't even. The athletes intensely in the 90s tried to kill the reporters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think I'm kidding. You think I'm kidding. I once pointed this out to my friend, Kristen Almer, who uh, she's actually in Art of Impossible and right, one of the greatest female athletes in history. And five years ago, I was like, you know, we did. I, I mean, almost everybody who covered this, we all, we all got PTSD. I mean, everybody got PTSD who was the journalists who were covering this stuff. They would go out of their way to try to scare the scare us to death. And it w wasn't that hard. No, <laughs> exactly. What they, were, what they were doing. Um, but yeah, that was fairly common. You know, we, it's, it's funny with, with journalists, action sport athletes, and you see it with, um, uh, spec ops guys, um, as a general, uh, we don't tell the stories, um, unless we're talking to other journalists, spec ops people, or action sport athletes, because, um, I've discovered if I tell you a story about my life, the first one's fun. The second one's kind of fun too. The third one, you start comparing your life to me. And by the fourth or the fifth, <laughs> you feel bad. And I got paid to have adventures, right? Yeah. Like I got, I put my life on the line, but I got paid to have adventures and you can't, there's no comparison. You're like, you're, these are three categories of people who found a way to get paid to have adventures and you can't, like the comparisons aren't good. So I could write an autobiography. It's hard to like, it's not, yeah, super yeah, yeah. you know, it's hard to believe on one end and on the other end, it doesn't like, I don't know, somebody will write a biography. Maybe we'll, I'll, maybe I'll say yes to that one. I don't, I don't know. I think I it'd be fine. I mean, I think just because like, you're like, uh, you, I, well, you've been writing a lot about your, I think you've got like what, 15 books now or 10 books, 11 books, 13, a lot of books, 13, 13 books. books. Yeah. And like, you have like nine of them or 10, and a lot of them are New York times bestsellers. Like you have, and a lot of them are based around like human optimization, peak performance. Like, is that how you started to get super passionate about that is when you started to follow along yeah. with these athletes and. So it started, I mean, it started accidentally. We started, I came out, I was a, you know, I told you I was a, I was a fiction writer. I was looking yeah. for, I fell into magazine journalism and journalism, you know, the 1990s, um, there was an explosion in publishing. There were magazines all over the place. And it was on a certain level, they gave the lunatics the keys to the, right? They gave a group <laughs> of like outsider weirdo punk rockers, the key of a media empire. That's essentially what the nineties were. And um, yeah. it was, um, I started if you, whatever you were curious about, you could cover. And I was covering action sports and the nineties in action sports is often talked about as the era of impossible because more so-called impossible feats than ever before were done in every sport. And the, it wasn't just that I was seeing the impossible. It was one, it's a very different thing when you see the impossible on a screen or you're literally, you go drinking with somebody on a Friday night and you're just hanging out. And then Saturday morning you get up and you go skiing and they do something that for all of recorded history has never been done and nobody ever thought would be done. It's a very different thing when it, like, it's just your friend doing it because right. you know they're very human. And it was weirder with the action sport athletes because if you go into the 1990s, 
I was writing about access board athletes. I was also writing a lot about neuroscience and psychology and performance issues. So I, I had some familiarity with that world. The athletes I was covering, most of them came from broken homes and horrific childhoods. They had very little money. They had very little education. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of very significant risk taking. So if I say, hey, Jennifer, there's this group of people, they do a lot of drugs, they take a lot of risks, they drink a lot, uh, they got no education, they got very little money, and they had really bad childhoods. What do you think happens to them, right? In almost every version, what doesn't happen is they redefine the limits of the human species over and over and over and again. So that's what I was seeing. And I wanted to know why the hell if this was happening. As you pointed out, I did chase these athletes around. I broke a lot of bones along the way. And there got to be a certain point where I was like, wow, this is, I love these sports. It's fun to do this, but this is, the cost is too steep. I don't want to do, like, I just don't want to have any more surgery in the name of work, basically. And right. So I took this question of what does it take to do this impossible? Then I started to answer with the athletes everywhere. I took it into this science fiction, turning into science fact, right? When I was in the room watching William DeBell turn on the world's first artificial vision implant, yes, I was reporting on the story, but I was also trying to figure out how the hell, I mean, this was a biblical miracle, right? Literally like the yeah. last person who made the blind see was Jesus, as far as anybody's <laughs> concerned, right? Well, yeah. I believe that story, it's a biblical miracle. and. Here is this crazy maverick inventor doing the same thing. Um, I was trying to figure out why it's happening. And it was the same thing. I mean, like, it, William DeBell was not the poster. I mean, he was a diabetic in a wheelchair, not legs amputated below his knee, I think on one leg. I mean, he was a mess, um, difficult, complicated. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, it, uh, you would see it over and over and over again. And it begs from a simple human perspective. Because suddenly you're under the hood and you're like, wow, these are not extraordinary people. They're doing extraordinary things. Right. They become extraordinary people, but they didn't start out that way. And they're very human. They're very much like you and me. So how is this happening? Right. How well, is this possible? Well, exactly. So I wanted just to say like, yeah, so the book is obviously called The Art of Impossible, your newest book. And um, you said something already that I was I wanted to ask you about. Uh, but first, I wanted to say that you you say there's four skill sets that people need to be uh, you know to to, to become you know to do things that you know peak performance or impossible do things that are impossible. But like what you to your point, you said it's not the extraordinary people that you think are doing it. Anybody can do it. These are things that like what you've found in all your research is that like it's. People literally are not extraordinary. They're actually ordinary until they become extraordinary. But, and you can't, you can't even see it happening until it's happened, basically. Yep. I think there's two things that I worth talking about here. The first is exactly what you're just saying. The, the way 30 years of studying these moments in time when we saw something that we capitalized impossible, right? Something that was never supposed to happen right. um, being done. The major lesson is... Um, we are all capable of so much more than we know, but human capability, human potential is invisible, especially to yourself. And it's because we figure out what we're capable of by stretching our skills to the utmost again and again and again, and that capacity emerges over time. And it even, I can even, the research is even crazier than that. There's research, a lot of research at this point that shows that you can't even look at an activity from the outside, right? You've got a deep background in fitness. If I think of a sport you've probably never played, highlight, 
for example, right? <laughs> Not a sport right. you've ever played. And yeah. I say, Jennifer, will you like, do you think you're going to like high lie and you think you're going to be good at it? Now, you're a woman who knows a lot about her body, has spent years understanding that stuff. What the research tells us is that you cannot from the outside predict whether or not you're going to like highlight yeah. or be good at it until yeah. after you actually get into it, right? So at every level, our potential is invisible to ourselves. The second lesson is, I think, the, the, the four, let, let's back up and define, we talked about capital I impossible. The Art of Impossible is a book for anybody interested in small I impossible which I define as the following. Small I as possible is that which we think is impossible for ourselves, right? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I wanted to be a writer when I was four years old. Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s, blue collar steel mill town. I don't know any writers. I don't know how you become a writer. It was like I woke up one morning and said, mom, dad, today I'm going to become an elf <laughs> or a hobbit, right? I mean, like that's, yeah, that, yeah, was, yeah. that was essentially what I, and that's a small I impossible. What does that mean? There's no known path between point A and point B, and statistically, really poor odds of success. Rising out of poverty is another capital I impossible. Overcoming trauma is another small I impossible. Becoming world-class at anything, small I impossible. Becoming a successful entrepreneur, small I impossible. Um, and small I or, or big small I? Small I. Small I. These are all small I impossible, but what, that, what I all, also want to point out is that Nobody, I, I don't think there's anybody who's been in the room with more times than the impossible has become possible who's currently alive right now than me. And not only did, were they not extraordinary people in that room, I don't, I met nobody who set out to accomplish capital I impossible. Not one person who really literally did something that has never been done. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was small I impossible after small I impossible after small I impossible. And then that capital I was just what was next. And let me give you a really concrete example of this from the very first conversation I had with Laird Hamilton, big wave surfer. Yeah. No, I know. He's great. He's, awesome. but he's like, he's like an extraordinary, you know, he is an, ext like, but yes, I, 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 I'm okay. curious. Let me tell you the story. And then you tell me if you agree with that. First okay. time I met Laird, he was 33 years old. He was then towing into Jaws. I was about 27. And this was in the nineties. He was widely considered the biggest badass on the planet, right? right? Exactly as you described him, he's that guy. He still and is, by the way. He, he still, still is. is that guy. He still <laughs> is that guy. But uh, ask Laird about trying to kill journalists. Ask Laird about trying to kill me, by the way. <laughs> um, besides the point. Um, yeah, right. The, uh, when I met Laird, he said, you know, Stephen, people, they see me on a 50-foot wave. I'm 33 years old. They th see me on that 50-foot wave and they think, oh, my God dude, that is impossible. You're Laird Hamilton. No way could I do anything like that. And he's like, maybe. But you know what they didn't see? They didn't see me at three years old on a three-foot wave. They didn't see me at four years old on a four-foot wave. And they didn't see me at five years old on a five-foot wave. And in fact, they didn't see me last week on a like 49 and a half-foot wave. So they see me on a 50-foot wave and they think, dude, whoa, that's impossible. And I think, Laird, man, you're not even pushing very hard. Come on, six more inches? We can do better than that. That's what I mean by small I impossible after small I impossible after small. Most of the time, the capital I impossible is just what happens next. And Laird will tell you, um, Laird is an extraordinary athlete, and maybe he's extremely well built for the thing that he went after. But one of the things that I, that I think is true, I met a tremendous amount of people in my time as a journalist. And I, I, I've met a tremendous amount of people. I, I think everybody's got something. 
They've got, everybody's got one or two things that they can do probably better than anybody else in the world um, or be at least world-class in. And I think that's, I've never met anybody who hasn't, just like I haven't met, I've met very few dumb people. I've met a lot of people who are, speak different languages, but if you can figure out what language somebody speaks and you talk to them about what they're really passionate about, pretty quickly figure out people are all usually smart about something. And that thing that they're smart about, they probably can be world-class. And if they were, if they had a playbook and they knew what they were doing. And so I tried to provide the playbook. You know, it's funny. I just, I, I just had a conversation with someone yesterday about that exact thing that there's that, you know, there's been like a, I don't remember who the philosopher was, but it was basically that not, and no, nobody's smart or nobody's stupid. It depends on, you got to find your niche and you'd be smart in that if you find what you're interested and passionate about. But to, I wanted to say something that we were talking about earlier and kind of to this thing as well with even layered. Um, about learning and like what it really is to become, you know, to, to become, you know, to optimize your performance or to become extraordinary or, or do things that are impossible. Because in your book, and you talk about this, it's not necessarily what we've all kind of like um, read about by, you know, Erickson and of course, Malcolm Gladwell, who talks about the 10,000 hour rule, right? That if you just do 10,000 hours at something, you'll become a master at it, right? Because to what you were saying, earlier in the podcast is the, the extreme people that you were dealing with, they did not have the same background. Like it goes down into like how you were raised, you know, the marshmallow, like yeah. we, I, I really yeah, want to, right, you want me to break that down? Yeah. Um, I, want, um, I really want to delve into the learn, like how does someone really become extraordinary and the learning and like what, what people think it is and versus what the research actually shows. Okay. So let's, Let's answer your first question, Sagat, invert your order. So yeah, that's what fine. The as research, long as you answer so, them, I don't care. Yeah, I'll answer. Now, what okay. the research because you mentioned it earlier, and there are peak performance is, is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us, right? That's all that's going on when we're talking about peak performance. So when we're talking about going for the impossible or just I want to be my best at work today, the skills are the same because it's just our biology. Mm -hmm. And that biology is, these are, by the way, skill sets, but motivation. So when I say motivation, I mean external motivation, internal motivation, goal setting, and grit, because it's a catch-all term for these four things. But so it's motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. These are the four skill sets underneath human, perform human cognitive performance. And in whatever the task, whatever the goal, easy way to think about it, motivation is what gets you into the game. Learning is what allows you to keep on playing. Creativity is how you steer. And especially when you're steering towards high, hard goals and possible goals. I want to be a writer. I don't know where the hell I'm going. I don't know that, that creativity is how you steer, create a problem solving. And then the flow, which is the optimal state of performance. Flow is literally defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And it's universal. If you're human, you can get into flow. We're all hardwired for this. That's the entire, like, that's the suite of peak performance. That's all anybody is doing. The thing you're specifically referring to is what the action sport athletes presented a big challenge to our standard. There were, there are a number of really standard theories about excellence. What does it take to be the best in the world? And one of them, as you pointed out, is Anders Ericsson's um, so-called deliberate practice, right? Malcolm uh, Malcolm came up with 10,000 hours and Anders himself had said, you know, that's an arbitrary number, right? Like Malcolm was literally said, how long does it 
take to become uh, like a first chair violinist? Or so? How many professional violinists had practiced 10,000 hours by the time they were 20? If he had set the cutoff as 30 and Anders himself said, you know, most professional violinists don't start actually playing professionally until they're in their 30s. So then it would have been 20,000 hours. Mm -hmm. And for memory experts, by the way, you can become a memory expert, like memorizing pi out to 400 digits or whatever you want very, very quickly. That's a skill you can onboard really, really quickly. Archery, rifle shooting, that, those skills come much faster than 10,000 hours. So that's really, it wasn't the exact thing. And what Anders' thing was deliberate structured practice. 10,000 hours of deliberate structured practice. And the problem with the action sport athletes is they were nothing deliberate or structured about the way they, right? They went out onto the mountain and they had a blast. But as a guy who spent the decade with these people, there was nothing deliberate or structured, or, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. at all about it. Um, action sports has gotten that way now. Like there's coaches and it's formalized and some of those things are a little more deliberate and structured, but back then, no, not at all. The second one was marshmallows. This is Walter Michelle's yeah. work, right? You can, if the kids who cannot eat the marshmallow and delay gratification, they perform so much better later in life. And it's action sports is, is it's a pursuit of pleasure. It's a hedonic experience. These are not people who delay gratification. Everybody in action sports, especially back in the nineties, these were like hardcore hedonists, live right. fast, die young kind of people. They would have eaten the marshmallow and then some, and yet, you know, they were succeeding. And the other part, the mothers was that what you pointed out also, which is genetics and early childhood experience is the largest determiner of, of where you're going to go. And, you know, they didn't have, everybody I met had a crappy childhood experience. I knew, I mean, it was really rare to find an action sport athlete who was remarkably happy. Most of that, when they were growing up, most of them sort of got driven to their right. sport. Right. So that was the challenge. And, and the, the, it was a puzzle and the answer is flow. So what these athletes got very, very good at is producing the state of flow while they were doing their sport and flow massively amplifies learning and memory. And e easy way to think about this, underneath the state of flow, there's a bunch of different changes in the brain and the body, but you get five or six, depending on there are other people around, uh, big feel-good neurochemicals that show up in flow, dopamine, norepinephrine, anandamide, serotonin, and endorphin, um, and sometimes oxytocin. And these are all pleasure chemicals. They're reward chemicals. They, they're performance-enhancing chemicals. Um, but quick shorthand for how does learning and memory work in the brain, the more neurochemicals that show up as an experience, better chance that experience moves from short-term holding into long-term storage. That's another thing neurochemicals do. They tag experience. Super important, save for later. So right. flow is this huge neurochemical dump, which is why stuff that happens in flow, we tend to really remember. When the DOD did studies on flow and learning, they found that soldiers in flow will learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. So what happens is by developing an extremely high flow lifestyle and practicing their sports in flow all the time, they got so much farther faster and they did it in mm. a very unconventional way. So um, that's the flow end of the equation, um, you know, motivation, learning, creativity and flow. That's more of the flow end of the equation. But obviously you can see that flow amplifies learning and it also amplifies motivate, right? It works on all these systems. But that's what you were talking about there. I was, yeah. And then, and then let me ask you something, and uh, like, so does that mean that 
forget about the action, you know, the, the extreme athletes. How about just in terms of reg, uh, uh, people who are oh, yeah. ex- extreme yes. and, other, and everything else? It doesn't even matter. So Jennifer, whenever you see a culture of innovation, this could be Seattle, grunge rock movement back in the 90s, right? right. This could be San Francisco in the 60s with the, with the hippie movement. This could be Silicon Valley today, right? Whenever you see a culture of innovation, what you're seeing is always a cul- flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. 22 have been discovered. There's probably way more, but that's what we found so far. And we can go into a lot of detail if you want, but essentially whenever you see a culture of innovation, action sports, Silicon Valley, doesn't matter. You're seeing culture built around flows triggers where, you know, and flows triggers become very foundationally important to that culture. And that's, that tends to be what produces innovation. In fact, to put it in a more prosaic business context in uh, corporate America for the past almost hundred years, whenever a major corporation wants to innovate, one of the first tools they'll reach for is a skunk works, Right. Skunk Works is like isolate the innovation pod from the rest of the company. It was an idea that was originally developed by Lockheed Martin in the 1940s to build fighter jets faster than the Germans. And there were 14 rules for how do you build a great Skunk Works? And everybody's done this. When Steve Jobs wanted to invent the Macintosh, right? It was the Apple computer was done in a Skunk Works. When Walmart wants to do something, they use Skunk Works. It's everywhere in business. And yet there are 14 rules for how do you create a Skunk Works? In the original document, most of them are flow triggers. They're most of the, all of them are about creating conditions that are essentially flow triggers. Whenever we want to do innovation, this is what we do because this is the biology. This is how it works. So right. I like to, you know, I, I, I hope you had this experience reading Art of Impossible, but I, I always think that whenever I talk to anybody who's good at their job, who's successful, huge chunks of the book should be familiar because this is, Right. There's just your biology. This is the toolkit. So the ex- I hope your experience was, oh, wow, I do that. Oh, wow, I do that. Oh, I didn't know I had to do that in here. And I didn't know this is why I was doing that and how it was tied to that. But I, I tend to and people tend to have different weak spots, you know, tending often mm-hmm. coded for by how you what you do for a living. Right. Like I can tell you if you're a spec ops man or woman in, in special forces, you have crappy recovery practices because um, um, right. Like, yeah. Right. Like I can, like usually people like have blind spots, certain, you know, certain things that they don't tend to do because it's not sort of baked into their culture, but basically the performance culture that they come up in. But as a general rule, most peak performers, when they read the book, go, oh, yeah, I can recognize 30, 40 percent of this stuff. A bunch of it's new, but like I'm doing this stuff, too. And of course you are because it's just your biology, right? Right. I mean, I think it's interesting. I really loved the learning, the learning section a lot. I have a, I have a bunch of questions about the, the, the flow triggers, but, um, you talk, you, I, I, the learning part is the part that I was like, Oh, you know what? Like if you have to read, like you said, you talk about the, how, like when you learn a different language or whatever, you can read like three or four books and it makes no, you, you can't understand a word. And, and then finally, like you, you, it's, it's like pattern, uh, recognition yes, right a lot of what I, yeah a lot of what we're what i'm trying to teach people is <clears throat> we have built-in learning software right just like those neurochemicals i talked about that show up when we have powerful experiences right um that's part of our learning software the brain does pattern recognition it automatically finds connections between things that are similar so I'll, i this is a really weird example but this top shelf from here to about here are books I haven't read. 
And they're all books um, on intuition or insight. They're new books. My next book is going to be on intuition and insight. And these are all the books on intuition and insight and the neuroscience of intuition and insight that I haven't read before. But I know by the time I'm done reading those books, I will have a new book. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You don't know. I know know my book is in there because I have a pattern recognition. I know that I've got all my learning that I've already done. I'm going to learn new shit in that book. My brain is going to connect what I already know with the new shit. And that's my book. And I know that. Like, I don't, I'm not, you know, I used to be really twitchy about where's my next idea going to come from. And now it's like, oh man, I like 20 books. I read them. You know what I mean? That's my, like, and that kind of thing. And mind you, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and intuition for years to get to this point, but you get my point. Yeah, absolutely. I do. More from our guest, but first a few words from our sponsor. So when I heard about Mint Mobile's $15 a month plan, I thought there had to be a catch. And then I tried out their service and noticed not the slightest difference in my quality of service or internet strength. So then why am I paying so much for my wireless service? Uh, not anymore. It's Mint Mobile all the way. They have unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash habits. That's mintmobile.com slash habits. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash habits. Well, let's go back a little bit to the motivation piece because I think people always ask about, you know, you know, how do I stay motivated? How do I get motivated? And, you know, I always respond, you're the expert. Um, I always say motivation is like a, you know, you can't rely on just motivation because it's like anything else. It gets weak after a while. You've got to rely on other things um, to get you there. Um, And you talk about like, how does, what is, how does grit play a part in all of this? And how do you like, how does motivation work in the, in the grand scheme? Like, so people move from motivation to, you know, the learning, like how does the whole thing, like kind of put the process to move? Yeah. Excellent. And I've got a tool here. So the bunch of what I'm going to talk about uh, is online for free in a thing called the passion recipe. If you go to the passion recipe.com, that's uh, we turned it into the, because this motivation was such a problem for so many people. So we turned much. it right. We turned it into an interactive worksheet, and then we just we're giving it away online for free because it's just everybody has this issue. So if, this is not a simple answer, but the motivation always has to start with extrinsic external motivation. And what the reason is this: the research is really clear that it, if you're interested in peak performance and or in performance improvement, let's say. Now, forget peak performance. Right. You don't have to be going after the impossible. <laughs> you just want to be better in the gym and at work, right? <laughs> right, like, right, right, right. Get, help me through Monday. Fuck yeah. the impossible, right? <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. But on Monday yeah. is my issue, right? If that's where you're at, it's totally yeah. fine too. Um, uh, extrinsic matters because if we can't take care of basic safety and security needs, right? You don't know where your next meal is coming from. You can't pay your rent. It produces too much anxiety. 
and it blocks performance, just all performance. And so the research is really clear, and it, but it's not a lot of money. That's the crazy part about it. It's literally you need enough to make basic safety and security needs and a little left over for kind of recreation fun, but not much more. And what the research shows is that if you're trying to motivation motivate like productivity and performance improvement, like really simple stuff, once you get above that money threshold, money isn't the biggest motivator. It starts to fade, yeah. right? So you need enough money so you get in the game, right? And you can reduce your anxiety, but it's way less than most people think it is. And once that external motivation goes away, it, what becomes much more powerful is what are known as intrinsic motivators. And there are five major ones, and they're designed to work together, to be cultivated in a specific order, in a specific way, and designed to work in sequence. And here's what they are. The first most basic foundational human motivator is curiosity. Curiosity is our most basic motivator. Curiosity is designed to be built into passion. In fact, what when we say passion, biologically, all we're talking about is the intersection of multiple curiosities, right? Once you have, once you've located the intersection of, and this is what the Passion Recipe Workshop will help you do, located the intersection of multiple curiosities and cultivated it to make sure it's really the right spot for you, you're starting to grow passion. Once you attach that to a cause that is greater than yourself and outside of yourself, now you have purpose. So you've got a passion, you got to find a bunch of your curiosities, where do they intersect? And now what's a big problem in the world that I want to see solved? How does my passion connect to that problem? That's how you do that. Once you have purpose, what do you want? You want the freedom to pursue that purpose, you need autonomy, right? Right. And once you have the freedom to pursue your purpose, you need mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose. Once those things are set up, the next thing the system demands is goals. Where am I going? Right? <laughs> I got all this stuff. I got all this energy. Where am I going specifically? And it turns out the biology says there are three levels of goals we need. Mission level goals for our life, high hard goals, which are like one to five year goals. Mission level goal. I want to be the world's greatest writer. High hard goal. I want to write a book on cooking. I want to write a book on fitness. I want to write a book on boxing. Um, and then you need clear goals, daily to-do lists. And they all got to be fed in the same direction. And the back end of that is the question you asked, grit. Grit is what you need when the motivation runs out. And the motivation, as you pointed out, it only gets you so far. Now, the, what sets peak performers apart is just like peak performers stack fuel sources, right? Like they always, they hydrate well and they, they you know, they eat their vegetables, they eat their fruits, they get good protein, right? They stack fuel sources. Right. Peak performers stack internal fuel sources. You want curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Why? Because it's hard here. Life is difficult. It's hard for all of us. And you need all the motivation you can get. And, and by the way, let's, motivation also is it's one of these things people talk about passion and purpose, and they're very mystical and sexy, and, and maybe they are, right? But from a performance standpoint, it's a really simple equation. In any situation, you don't have a hell of a lot to work with. You've got your attention. What am I going to pay attention to? And what am I going to ignore? you got your action. What's the thing I'm going to do, right? right? That's about all you can bring to any situation. If you happen to bring your attention and your action, you do the same thing over and over again. What do you get? You get a habit. Now yep. you get to perform the action, right, without having to think about it and with less energy. But that's like, 
That's pretty much the entire equation in whatever it is that we're trying to learn or do. And the thing that you're doing, the action you're performing, as you know, you can get better at it, you can improve, but it happens slowly over time based on like who you are in the world and how well you learn and a whole bunch of other stuff and how well the task fits your skills, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning you can do some stuff there, but you can't, you, it's, there's nothing fast that's going to happen there. Focus is where something fast can happen. That's why attention matters, or that's why intrinsic motivators matter. Why does curiosity matter? We get focus for free, right? right. Why does passion matter? Way more. Fun. Think about romantic love is considered a passion. Neurochemical, it's the same as any passion. Passion of the artist, romantic love. <clears throat> when you're falling in love with somebody, you can't stop thinking about them. You can't stop paying attention to them, and you're not exerting any effort for it, right? That's the big deal. Purpose is the same thing. It's more of that, right? Um, and all these things, they sound, purpose sounds really altruistic and you know, millennials and Generation Z, they love to talk about their purpose and you get a lot of sort of virtue <laughs> signaling and all that stuff. And yeah. I always point out, I'm like, you may be doing that for like whatever reason, but from a performance standpoint, purpose is entirely selfish. Like yeah. you want a purpose because I mean, neurobiologically, pat curiosity is a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. Both are focusing chemicals. When they're in our system, we feel them as excitement. Dopamine is like excitement and pleasure and the desire to make meaning out of a situation. And norepinephrine is much more super excitement, super like when we can't stop obsessing over somebody, that's often norepinephrine. We think about that's that kind of excitement. You put them together a little bit, you get curiosity. You crank that up. Now, suddenly you've got passion. That's what passion is neurobiologically. It's just these two neural chemicals really cranked up. If you attach it to something outside of yourself, you get norepinephrine and dopamine, but you also get all what are called the pro-social chemicals, all the chemicals, the reward chemicals that underpin social bonding, oxytocin, serotonin, anandamide. These are all massively feel good, endorphins, feel-good drugs, right? Endorphins underpin uh, maternal bonding and friendships, and you get them when you have a purpose, you're going to help the world, endorphins start showing up. The most common endorphin in the body, these are internal opiates like morphine. It's 100 times more powerful than medical morphine. So like big pleasure drugs, right? Really yeah. rewarding pleasure drugs. And but from a- I have a, I have a question please. actually. Yes, please. Okay. Um, my question is, I feel like I'm like raising my hand, but uh, do, do we all have, no, no. Do we all have different levels and amounts of these chemicals? So that's why I some of us are- right? Like some of us are more curious than others. Some of us are have more like that guy who like uh, climbed El Capitan, you know, the guy who went up there with no nothing. He had no chemical to tell him no fear in his body. Like he didn't have that chemical to like to kind of elicit well, he, the fear. He, yeah, so he, his amig, he, his, the part, he, he actually has Nora and he, uh, he produces Nora up and Efren, but his amygdala part of the brain, his danger detector, um, yeah, the danger. Lot, yeah. His, it's a lot less reactive than most people's, but that's a cultivated thing. You can get produced. Now, was he born that way? You can get a less reactive amygdala through meditation. That's one of the things you're doing. When people do mindfulness and respiration yeah. and meditation, you're set when you separate the gap between thought and feeling and become mm -hmm. less reactive, neurobiologically you're literally making your amygdala less reactive. That's literally what is happening through mindfulness. So 
Was he born that way a little bit more than the average person? Probably, yeah, probably true, right? There's probably some neurobiology underneath there, but was it a learned skill through, you have to remember that rock climbing and mindfulness are two activities that require intense focus on the task at hand and breathing. And so, right. right, so a lot of my early work in action sports, when I was actually, the researchers I was working with, uh, I was working a lot with Dr. Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania. He was studying uh, meditation in, in Buddhist monks and Franciscan nuns. And we started to realize that the same focus as surfer brings to a wave, a meditator brings to a meditative experience. That was one of the, that was kind of one of the early uh, bits of work we did together. Um, they're very, very similar. That's what I mean yeah. by our biology is the same and the things are the same. Yes, every did Alex come in with less fear? He probably, you know what I mean? Yeah. He, a little bit. And, uh, um, but everybody's sort of got their thing, as you know. You know what I yeah. mean? So and you can just, train yourself. You can train your brain to a certain level. Like, But how far can you train it, right? So like, yeah, you're saying meditation can help. And, you know, some people, you know, the but... Do people at least like not everyone like no matter how much I train my brain, I'm not going to be a Laird Hamilton or an Alex, you know, you know, basically, no matter how much meditation I do, I'm not climbing that mountain without anything on me. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to happen. So, right. So everyone has levels. I have to tell you something as a fitness person and as a rock climber, I ab like I can absolutely look at you and tell you that I could teach you to climb. And I can actually tell you, I can teach you to climb at a level that you probably would be willing to free solo, uh, like a five, five or five, six climb. I'm not like, not like this happens all the time with climbers. People come into climbing and I mean, you start, you just start learning to climb more and more without ropes. He took it to the farthest extreme. And so, yes, can you, you yeah. Are you ever going to climb out cap without rope? No, of course not. But could you get in the ring? Could you get in? Could you actually start playing that game? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the reasons I know this is A, I can look at you. You're thin, huge advantage with climbing. B, women have better lower, because of how your hips are situated in your body, women tend to do better at climbing than men and learn it quicker. I um, mean, but don't you say also that you don't know you're good at something until you actually do it? And see if you're good at it too, right? So I didn't say you were going to be a good climber. I just, <laughs> I, I just said I could get you to the point that you'd be willing to free solo comfortably. My point oh is my that God. what you think is impossible is not it's like it's no, I mean, it's really not. Like I, you know, as a guy who's climbed for years and years and years, and I've watched people come into the sport um, and, and, and learn it, and you'd be shocked. Really? Oh my God. Okay. So maybe I'll take you up on that. Maybe you go can to a, just go to, a, go to a climbing gym. Just go to a climbing gym and learn. I've, done, I've actually done it with my kid and it's fun. I like it, but it's indoors and I don't go that high. I go to maybe like 20 feet. Now we got to so. get you a bigger climbing gym. Yeah, I think so. Exactly. Right, you're in Atlanta. I got to find you a climbing gym in Atlanta. No, I'm in LA. I'm in LA. You're in LA. In LA. Yeah. Oh, yeah the, to, yeah. the climbing gym in LA sucks. Oh, it does. Rock Nation is where I, oops, I shouldn't say yeah. that, but yeah. It's Santa Monica, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I climb there. It's very, it's not a very good gym. No, it's small. Um, it's very yeah, small. That's why small. I feel like a hero. Yeah. I feel like it gives me confidence though, because I can get all the way up to the top and I feel like a superhero. Can, I mean, if you can climb in there, you could start bouldering and boulder. I mean, people boulder all the time where they're yeah. climbing 20 foot walls without ropes all the time. 
And, you know, I, by the way, I'm terrified of heights, terrified of heights. Nobody ever had, I just didn't like being afraid. So I'm, yeah. I don't like being the feeling of, so I will go at anything that makes me feel afraid. I'll go at anyways, because I don't like, I don't like feeling the fear. And I was right. really drawn, I was drawn to the rocks. Like they're beautiful. Like I wanted to have rock climbing is how you get to interact with like rock faces and mountains and, you know, parts of nature that you don't get up close to otherwise. And that was really attractive to me. So I got over it, but it never, like I never once was outside where I wasn't terrified. Really? Yeah. And do you do free soloing to yourself? Like you go without the rope? I'm okay, no. older, but no, I won't freeze. I probably have, I probably climbed a 40 foot wall without a rope at, at one point or another. I don't think anything bigger than that. And I wouldn't do it now. Yeah, well, oh my gosh, that's so scary. Um, sorry, so I was going to say something. Okay, so you're saying that you have to get, because we're like jumping, but I, I really enjoy your book. I have really, actually, to be honest with you, I really like all of your books. You've had really, like, you, Stealing Fire was good, The Rise of Super, Super Superman. Like, you've, you've, you've done, like, this is like, you've done very well. Your books are very good. I have to be, I've, I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast. I think you do a great job. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. That's no. nice. No, it's absolutely true. And you can see how much research you do for crying out loud. I mean, like you're like, you, you know, like you, this, you know, this stuff, like the back of your hand, right? Like you've been doing this for so long. Um, I do, you, you know, when I was doing professional magic as a little kid, there's lines in the book, right? Anything is easy with 10 years practice. Yes. And, you know, yeah. it turns out peak performance is still not easy, but and I've got, it took 30 years, but I got there, you know. I'm a slow learner, no. but I'll get there eventually. <laughs> I really um, am, but like, that's a true that's a true statement. I'm a very I'm a very slow learner. I, I like a joke I routinely say about myself is there is nothing here I won't eventually learn the hard way. Really? I, yeah, I won't stop. The one thing I like, I just won't stop. But I don't mind being bad, and I don't mind doing it over and over and over and over and over again because I know. Fitness actually taught me this. I was 119 pounds coming out of high school and the same height as I am now. I was tiny. I'm an ectomorph, a total ectomorph. Yeah, it's good. Um, you could, yeah, you are an ectomorph. Right? Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm now 100, probably 55 pounds. And it's- You um, are? Where are you holding it? In your toes? Because you don't yeah, look I it. <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, it's like I got there- very, I, I still remember being in a gym in San Francisco. I'd been working out almost a decade. I was like 27 years old. And it was one of those big muscle gyms in San Francisco. This guy walked in. He's like, dude, you, you just need to stick with it. You'll get there eventually. <laughs> and I wanted to kill him. I absolutely wanted to kill him. I was like, oh my God, I've been doing this for a fucking decade. <laughs> That's hilarious. hilarious. It was hilarious. <laughs> By the way, it was also that was also the moment in time I realized that I was probably doing it. Like that was when I actually started really learning stuff about fitness. Um, also, because I was like, you know, I probably am doing something wrong. Like if I've been doing this for ten years and I'm getting that reaction, right, right. probably like I probably should design a program and really think about how I approach this and things like that. Do you that. do weightlifting and stuff like that, like strength yeah, training? I've, you do. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been. In fact, I've, I. I lost it through ski season, but last year I got my bench back up to what it was when I was in college, when it was at its best. And I wanted to see if I could do it again at 53 and how long it would take. Um, and? It, it, I, my best was 225 uh, seven times, and I got to 225 four times. Okay. Um, 
That's good. So, no, it's 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 good. I'll probably by over the summer I'll probably actually be able to hit it. But by the way, it took four years. Okay, but, but like you said, you're slow. You're slow. That's to, what I mean. Like that's right? that's what I this. But I like I one of the reasons I'm like. I personality doesn't scale. I'd never give advice. What works for me what isn't going to work for you. I try to stay to the biology, but I will also say I am a terrible learner. I am a slow learner. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. Really? I always, okay. Yeah. I always, I always think that, um, that was also where, where, where some of the learning stuff came from. Cause if I can learn it, anybody can learn it. I didn't, I'm not an extraordinary intellect. I've done way more reading than most people, but that's all I've done. I've just outread everybody is um, my like my brain can do a couple of things that other people's brains can't do, but everybody's brain can do something that other people's right. brains can't do. Right. That's and not that's like, brain. you can just yeah, reach that's, faster that's, better. Exactly. I like really, I'm a, I'm a slow, slow learner in all this stuff. Wow. I mean, see, I, I'm surprised to hear that, but I mean, that that's kind of gives people some kind of, you know, it's, it seems like you'd have to be able to comprehend all the information well, too. Like you, how that's what I'm surprised about. I would think that because you read so much, um, and you're able to uh, like explain in layman's terms quite easily, that you're able to comprehend quite quickly. I'm not, but I'm willing to go for very long times. Most people are uncomfortable with uncertainty. They don't like not knowing and they yeah. don't like being bad at things. And when you're a journalist and I mean, you, when you have to become a subject expert to write an article and you have to write the article to get paid and you have to get paid to pay your rent, you write, you have to, right. you got to figure that shit out really fast, yeah. um, really, really fast. Right. When you're young and hungry and coming up and I, you know, I, um, there was no fallback position. You know what I mean? There was nothing else I was good at. Like I, this had to work and, um, and it had to be able to pay my bills and I had to learn a lot of subjects and there was no choice. I just started to realize that as long as I was willing to just be stupid, like just, I'm just going to keep reading them because I have a built in pattern recognition system, right? That was the point you made earlier. This is what often people don't realize about reading is in, in the book, I talk about the five books of stupid, right? Yeah. And it would, I would often read five books to familiarize myself with the language of a subject and sort of like the broad overarching, um, to basically get to the point that I could start interviewing experts, right? I needed to know enough so I could ask good questions and it would take about five books. But I really don't think I would start comprehending some of these subjects till book four. And not everybody is willing. I, I think everybody's probably willing to read those five, but they don't realize that they're eventually going to get it. Right. They think the fact that they're super stupid and frustrated in book one and two is a life sentence. It's always yeah. going to stay that way. Right. What they don't realize is as long as, you know, as long as you're not super anxious about it, because that'll block the learning, literally. Um, well, that's you, what I think it, happens to most people. You get, you get very anxious uh, that you don't, you're not catching on. And that's what also stops people from continuing. I think you're totally, I think you're totally right. And I like yeah. the only, the only thing that's different, the feeling doesn't change. I'm just saying, you know, we say this a lot in peak performance. Um, your feelings don't always mean what you think they mean. And this is really true when it comes to peak performance. Um, in fact, learning, let's just learning, the experience of learning, my, the, anybody's experience of learning is I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, wow, I don't suck anymore. Right? What the hell happened? Right. Yeah. But like that's learning for everybody. It doesn't matter. In fact, um, 
this is not my statement. This is my friend, Dr. Andrew Huberman's statement. He's a neuroscientist at Stanford. We do some work with. He likes to say, and I think he's probably right about this, that one of the biggest differences between like top performers and everybody else is top performers know it's always crawl, walk, run. And everybody else goes, man, I, I, I don't like crawling. I don't, I don't do crawl. I, I don't even do walk. I want to start by jogging. How do I find yeah. a shortcut? Right. And they spend all this freaking time looking for a shortcut so they can start jogging. And peak performers go, oh, yeah. Okay. There's another one of these. I'm going to crawl. Then I'm going to walk. Then I'm going to run. And the crawl is this sucks. This sucks. This sucks. This sucks. This sucks. This sucks. And the only, I think the only real difference is that peak performers understand that that it's not personal. That's sucking. And it's not you. And it's not a sign that you're not going to get better. It's literally you've overloaded the brain's working memory. You can only hold in the conscious mind four or five things at once. And once you're trying to hold on to more of that, so if you're trying to learn something, you're onto the fifth thing that you don't know, you're overloaded. Your brain Absolutely. is right. Your brain is overloaded and you're feeling it's frustration. This doesn't oh. actually mean you're not learning. It just means you're feeling frustrated because you've run up against the limits of your biology. I totally agree with that 100%. And the people that I've met and know as friend, also a friend of mine, they also, um, you're right, they start, with the, they know it's the crawl, walk, run. They don't try to start by sprinting and running a marathon. But, you know, this is a good, this is very similar to like weight loss, right? People are like, I want to lose 100 pounds. They're right. not starting with like, you know, walking around the block and losing one pound or two pounds a week, right? And so when you're not getting it, it's like it becomes very um, debilitating, you're depressed and you feel you feel less than right because you're not exceed, you're not getting to zero to sixty. You're not, the brain is should be telling you go to zero to one to two to three, right? So I totally, yeah, I think that I, I think that totally makes sense. And I also think you said this about grit. You brought up grit earlier, and I, this is a point I, I want to make about grit. Um, and I but I think it's true sort of across the boards, and it's sort of in this sort of neighborhood, which is like when you're trying to learn how to be gritty. You're tr you need to learn two things. There's the actual, let's say you're trying to get grittier in the gym, right? Or your weight loss and the grit is, I walked a half mile yesterday and tomorrow I'm going to walk, you know, a hundred more yards, right? Just uh, there's, you have to do that a hundred more yards every day, right? You have to do that. That's the grit practice. That's the actual, I'm getting physically grittier, but there's a second part to it. And most people miss this, which is you have to believe that you have the reserves to walk that extra hundred yards. And these are different things and they're different processes, right? So we, it's not enough to do the thing over and over and over again. You have to also believe it because they're different governors. I'll give you a, a simple example. Um, have you ever broken a bone doing a sport? I have, God, yes. Okay. So as you, you know that the physical injury takes however long it takes to heal, six months or whatever, but the mental injury takes about a year and a half to heal, right? Like there's a governor on your behavior for about a year and a half because your body doesn't want to give everything because it doesn't want to get hurt again. Scared. It takes about a year, right? You're scared and it's unconscious. There's nothing you can do, right? Like as an access sport athlete, it's unbelievably frustrating. I would be as a skier, right? I'd be chasing world-class athletes around and knowing that the reason I can't catch them is not because it's because I broke a bone like two years ago and there's a governor on my speed and I can't get past it until I get used to being comfortable with speed again. There's nothing like that's just what it is. 
all these things work that way, right? So there's there's a double step in there, and we forget that the hard step is convincing ourselves. How do you do that? That's the that's the that's the million dollar question, I, right? I, so I think, and I don't because I don't think it's fancy. I think this one gets overcomplicated, and I don't. I, by the way, I don't know if I have. This is a hard one, right? I don't. This is not an art impossible question. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. This is, this is a Stephen question, so you're at, yeah. you know. Um, so I, it's a hard one, but I, like I, what I think is, I always tell people, we often don't trust our own history. So I talk a lot about invisible skills, right? We all have skills. We know what our skills are, but we all have invisible skills, right? What the example I give in the book is if you grew up in a crap household, your mom and dad were fighting all the time and it was your job to defuse the argument, to make sure dad doesn't hurt mom or any of those situations, right? That's a bad situation that lots of kids grow up in. You have a skill. You can defuse arguments. That's a real freaking skill you have. You can build on that. In fact, you take that into the real world. You're a mediator or you're, you know, there's three or four guys in my company. They're there because they stay cool no matter what, right? Boss man is out there losing <laughs> his freaking mind, but I got a couple of guys on my right or left who they, like, they don't, they're Alex Honnold about business stuff. Yeah. And right. And they don't react like that. Even when I'm losing my mind, like we, 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 right. Cause they grew up in environments like that. That's an invisible skill. I don't have that skill. Um, and that's a so good point. One, we often don't trust our history with our skills, our strengths, right? We don't notice it that way. And we often don't trust our history about, um, when we've actually like, How many times did you work out in a row before you were you thought you were gritty, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it probably went on for years before you were like, oh wow, I'm actually gritty because I've been doing this freaking hard physical thing for years in a row. But when do you think the actual grit showed up? Biologically, after 28 days, after you laid down the habit, right? And then three months in that habit was totally automatized. That's when you actually have the grit, but you didn't believe it for three years. And that's because you don't trust your history. But you could have looked, if you would have stopped at four or five months and been like, whoa, I've been doing this thing every every day for five months. Maybe I can kind of believe that I'm, I'm capable of doing that, right? And it's not, it's like everything else, right? You're not going to get the belief all at once. It's going to be like the weight loss or everything else we're talking about. It's compound interest, but you have to notice, right? You have, you just have to pay attention to, oh, wow, you know what? I showed up every day and was a little more motivated than I, you know what I mean? Than I have been previous, that kind of stuff. And I think, so I don't have a magic pill here. I just have the, you know, awareness, awareness of, of our own victories. Um, and maybe pausing, I'm bad at celebrating victories. Um, I'm on to the next thing and on to the next thing and on to the next thing. Right. And I've got, I've got, usually it's my best friend who's like, dude, do you know what you just did? And I'll be like, no, but, what? Why don't you tell me? <laughs> you yeah, 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 exactly. I like that also, by the way, you said about compound interest, because I think it's all about the compound interest too. It's always, yeah. it's always what it is, right? Yeah. It's, it's the hardest thing. I think the two hardest things about peak performance for people is the shit that's in Art of Impossible across the board. It's not sexy. It's going to get nobody laid when they talk about it in a bar on Friday night, it's just not that way, right? Like the whiz bang technologies are sexy or the substances that you can use to drop and, you know, those are sexy. Those will get you laid on Friday night. <laughs> Talking about like 
how you actually develop grit by, well, okay, so I'm going to walk a hundred more feet than I walked yesterday. Then I'm going to, the next day after that, I'm going to walk it's not sexy, right? Like what, like, and it, and it sounds so dumb that it's really hard to even believe it'll, it'll work, right? Cause it's not those things. So we, there's a credibility problem because we are, especially in our high tech whiz bang world, we expect it to be a lot fancier than it really is. But you know what is sexy? Someone who has grit. Oh, yeah. And someone who is a peak performer. So it may not be sexy to get there, but once you get there, it's super sexy. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. You know? I agree with That's, that. No, I, I, you, you, you are right about that. Right. Um, and then I wanted to ask you something. Uh, one other thing I was going to... Well, we, you talk a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of your stuff and you have a whole you have a whole company based on Flow, right? What's your company called? Flow... Flow Research Collective. Oh, yeah. Flow Research Collective. Because... Um, you know, you talked about the, tr- we did talk about the triggers to get you to flow. What are some of those things? How do we get ourselves into that flow state where we can learn faster, get into that? You know, how do we do that? I know you, I heard you talk once about gratitude and not and what I liked and why I, why it kind of like stuck in my brain wasn't because you're saying, you know, I think you're talking about like you write a gratitude journal in the morning and you're, and you're not saying that because, you know, you're saying it's because of what the, the, the neurochemicals do to get you yeah. into that spot. So, yeah. So gratitude, this isn't a flow. I, it actually, so worlds of the expert on grad, neuroscience of gratitude is Glenn Fox. He teaches at USC um, and we've done studies with Glenn. What's his name? I'm going to write Glenn, that down. Uh, Glenn Fox. Um, if you, by the way, Glenn's just, if you want to email my, like, if you want him on your podcast, email my staff and ask for Glenn, Glenn, uh, Fox awesome. content. Yeah. We'll get I it think to you. you. I think you also mentioned someone that I, I read, I read and I liked him. The Huberman. Is he a sleep yeah, guy? Andrew Huberman. He's done some work on sleep. Oh, um, okay. He does some work on fear. Um, he's a good guy in peak performance, um, as well. Um, so, uh, Glenn, we, we did some studies. We did find that people who have regular gratitude practices tend to have way more flow in their lives. Mm. Um, so there's a correlation there and you are right. Um, and you did, but uh, what you're talking about. So but why is that? Why yeah, do people who have more gratitude practice have more flow in their life? Uh, let me back in. Let me start here and then we'll answer that. Um, Cause we're not a hundred percent. I'm not a hundred. I'm going to, that's not, that's an open question. We're not a hundred percent on that answer, but gratitude works. Because um, you are, the brain takes in a mass, 11 million bits of information a second is what we take in from our senses. Um, This is uh, a guy named Marvin Zimmerman's work. And um, consciousness, what you're aware of, is the largest anybody believes it is, is 2,000 bits of information. So, and there are some estimates that take it down to like 200 bits in terms of conscious awareness. So, 11 million bits of information come in for our senses and your reality is 2,000 bits. So, what does the brain have to do to make sense of all the crap that's pouring into it? It's got to sift. It's got to sort. It tries to tease apart the critical from the casual, right? And since the first order of business is always survival, fear gets privileged, right? When information moves into our brain... It goes, the first place it goes is basically it goes through our senses. It goes to the thalamus, um, which is a router, which sends it. And most of it goes from the thalamus to the amygdala, the danger detector. Tell me if there's something scary in the environment because the first order of business is keep me alive. So our fears tend to filter almost everything in our world. Now, 
work out of Berkeley shows that we will take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that gets through. That's the standard ratio in the world we live in. Mm, so okay. if, if we're taking in 11 million bits of information and consciousness is a couple hundred and nine negative for every one positive that gets through, this is a negativity bias. This is when psychologists talk about a negativity bias. Okay. That's what they're talking about. This is, this is, and this is a natural bias that most humans have. Um, when you do a gratitude practice, what happens is you'll start taking in less negative information because grat gratitude works in the same way that affirmations fail. Gratitude affirmations fail because the brain has a great built-in bullshit detector. So if you look in the mirror and say, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, a millionaire, and you work at Walmart, your brain goes, shut up, man, you work at Walmart, you ain't no millionaire. Right? right. And it's right. demotivating. It's totally demotivating. Gratitude works because you're writing down, I am so happy and grateful that my legs worked this morning and I got out of bed. It's a real thing. And what you're telling your brain is, hey, brain, there's more things that are real and good in my life than you think. And so we take, we start taking in six negative for every pot, every positive that gets through instead of nine, and it tilts the ratio in our favor. So what is the other mm -hmm. thing that gets through? Novel information that helps us obtain our goals. The two biggest filters on reality are our fears and our goals. Fears and goals shape almost everything. And when we can dial down fears, you increase novelty, and it's novelty that's usually pointed at our goals novelty and the experience of novelty when we experience novelty the brain releases dopamine dopamine drives focus anything that drives focus drives flow novelty is a flow trigger so when this is why gratitude will increase flow we think because it actually increases novelty and that leads to it we also think that gratitude calms you down um and uh, for a variety of other reasons that have to do with different flow triggers, less anxiety tends to lead to more flow. A little bit of anxiety, a little bit is good. Um, that actually produces a little bit of the neurochemical norepinephrine and primes the brain for learning. Too much of it, terrible. So this is, so it's a complicated relationship. But one of the things we advise people to do is if you can try to have a daily gratitude practice, five minutes a day, write down three things you're grateful for, turn one of them into a paragraph or write down 10 things you're grateful for and just really try to feel the gratitude. I, this is, you know, and I just like, this is my to-do list for the day. These are the things I'm grateful for, right? Um, and it's like, it's just a scrappy, I don't have a fancy notebook. I'm going to throw yeah. that away, right? Like this, I'm literally just reminding myself that there's good things in the world so I could calm the fuck down and be a little less of a neurotic Jew than I normally am. <laughs> It's literally what I'm doing, right? Because I'm going to perform. Oh my God. I right? love it. Exactly. Oh, I totally get it. So then you throw that away. So you, you throw away that, like the journal or whatever. It's just like a notepad and yeah, then you throw notepad. it away. I mean, like, you know, it literally. You don't keep like, it for two years. You're just going to throw that I, piece of the paper yeah, away. I mean, literally, all I find for me. I have to write down, and by the way, writing longhand is very useful. There's, there's, there's all kinds of weird uh, stuff. Yes, right about writing, but writing. So w with a gratitude thing, write longhand. It's better than a computer. I find if I write, I am happy and grateful for whatever it is that I'm grateful for three times. By the third time, because I'm dense, and you really have to feel it. 
You know what I mean? And I will like, I just want to get the shit done. I'm like, gratitude's on my daily to-do list. And I'll be like, I am so happy and grateful that my legs work this morning. But if by the third time I'm like, oh yeah, my legs do work this morning. And I am actually really damn grateful that I could get out of bed and go take my dog for a walk up the mountain. And like, that's legit. And right. But so that's how I do it. So like yeah. 30 sentences, it takes me about six minutes. And I, you know, with, with, when it comes to tuning the nervous system, you got to do something every day. Your choices are a five minute gratitude practice, 11 to 20 minutes of, of mindfulness will do the same thing or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. Pick one, but you got to do one every day. If you want to maintain like a nervous system, that's calm enough to enable peak performance. That's um, like, that's something that's in art of impossible. It's totally yeah. useful. Right. And you hear a lot about, you got to do a gratitude practice, mindfulness, or like you don't, you got to stay calm. Staying calm is the thing. And the three easiest ways we know to calm down are gratitude, mindfulness, and exercise. And with exercise, unlike exercise for fitness, where you have caloric goals or strength goals or whatever, um, you want to exercise until it's quiet upstairs. What's technically known as exercise-induced transient hypofrontality, um, it basically means I've worked out long enough that I'm, my brain's a little tired and I got to focus on the weightlifting or the treadmill or the whatever, and I can't think about that horrible thing my spouse said to me at breakfast, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's all we're talking about. Um, <laughs> Fitness exercise is a different thing, but like we, those are like, these are three of the things positive psychology has discovered over the past 30 years, right? Like you don't have to do everything every day, but you got to calm down every day. And these yeah. are the best three things you can do. No, I agree with that. Well, I'm, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, most people say you have to do all three. You got to exercise, you got to do your meditation practice, you got to do your, gra your journaling. You're saying as long as you're doing one of those three, you're, you can here's calm down I, your nervous here, system. Here, here's what I tell people as a general rule. Um, during regular life, most days, if you're just, just good, nothing, nothing crazy going on, do one, one of those three. If you're feeling more stressed, if we happen to be living under a pandemic, yeah. um, you know, if yeah. there's massive political instability in Washington, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> in, in, I, like yesterday, um, yeah. Days, oh my god! Right, with where, where, where Washington's exploding and the and the COVID death toll is higher than it's ever been. Yeah, maybe you want to do th all three <laughs> on days like yesterday. You know, I was working out, I was meditating, I you know, and um, but yeah, I mean that's like yeah. The the this is why I like working for the neurobiology. I mean, it's all, it's big fancy words and all that stuff, but honestly, you get, gets to, what is the point of all this stuff? The point of all this stuff is if I have too much norepinephrine, the neurochemical that's, and cortisol, that's anxiety in my yeah. system, it blocks peak performance. Um, and when I say blocks peak performance, let me give you a really simple example. The more anxiety in your system, the more logical and linear your brain wants to be. So when you're anxious, your brain doesn't want creative solutions to problems, even though that's actually probably what you need, your brain says, oh shit, you're in a danger environment. I, got, I can't give you options. I got to give you simple. So the extreme example that everybody knows is fight or flight. We know if I'm in a life-threatening situation, your brain is going to reduce your choices to three. You can yeah. fight, you can freeze, or you can flee. But a little anxiety is more of the same. It's a, it's a spectrum. Right, most things in the brain are spectrum of experience, not a not a thing that works just this way. It works that way across the boards. 
less anxiety is still less creative problem solving, right? There's other things you pay other detriments for, uh, for, for anxiety with, in terms of it, it'll start blocking learning um, and things along those lines as well. But literally, like if you're trying to problem solve, the last thing you want to be is anxious because it's literally blocking the very skill you need to solve your problem. And since anxiety is a natural portion of being human, you, if you're interested in performing at your best under, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the rest of the day. So like, I'm really psyched. I did my gratitude practice and then I hiked my dog. It wasn't, a, yeah. you know what I mean? It wasn't, a, I didn't go crazy. I'm going skiing this afternoon. So it was just a little mellow, you know, take the, take the guy for a stroll, but you know, got a little quiet upstairs and I did my gratitude work. And yesterday, I think it was a hell of a day for everybody in the country. So, you know, yeah, I yeah, yeah. a little food up. So I wasn't a psychopath on your podcast. No, no, exactly. You weren't at all. In fact, I, I enjoy talking to you. I can talk to you. I have like another hour of conversation. I can talk to you just about the flow part, but I know I've had you forever here. Um, so can you do me a favor? Will you come back on my podcast and we can discuss like we could be very specific because I know you have you're a fountain of information and we can like have just, you know, we can we can go through like each Jennifer, and every skill. I will come back on your podcast <laughs> as many times as you want until you're <laughs> like, okay, this dude is so fucking boring and he talks so much. I'm done with him. All right. Well, I'll hold you to that. That's for sure. Um, let me ask you, let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you making daily to-do lists? Am I? I'm trying. These are. My, I'm like you. That's why I laugh. I have the same kind of chicken scratch as you have over there. I I find I, the, the only way. I mean, I'm a big advocate of to do lists at all, but without them, working from home, there's no. How do you know when oh, you're yeah. done? How do you know when you're done? How do you know? Right? Like so, I to me, a lot of that, like when when I see people really lost, the first thing I'm always like is, okay, if you're really lost, daily to do list. Yeah. Um, it's so true, though. I, I I live by them, and like like you, that's why I had to laugh because I'm a neurotic Jew too, and I have to do anything to kind of I, I exercise just to kind of calm my nervous system, right? And um, and I have these to do lists because it makes me feel calm too, you know. Well, when, um, you, when you a to do list is a flow trigger, a clear goals list is a flow yeah. trigger, right? And the reason is is it lowers cognitive load, cognitive load, all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time, right? And but I lower cognitive, what do I do? I liberate more energy. You can use it for focus that drives flow. So clear goals, let's say do a couple other things, but they're big deal for flow, right? Clear, Absolutely. The, these, like you want a higher flow lifestyle. That's the easiest place to start. And again, this is a not sexy hack. It's never <laughs> going to get you laid. And you're going to be like, yeah, that Kotler dude, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He told me to make a list. He told me to make a list. <laughs> Hilarious. I feel you. I feel you, but you know, sorry, that's the science. It's so true. <laughs> um, okay, your book is called The Art of Impossible. It comes out. What day does it come out? It comes out January nineteenth. Uh, January nineteenth. Yeah. Um, you're you're, you're going to add this to the other uh, list of uh, bestsellers on your on your list, I'm sure, because it's very right. good. You're welcome. Um, and you are going to come back and um, just uh, wait, till, wait till March. Just let me get through the like. Oh, yeah, don't, I, yeah, I don't uh, want you I'm, till March anyway. Okay. I don't, I don't worry. I, I wanted you, but not that much. Not that <laughs> exactly. Good. You're good, but come on. Not that. Come good, on. No. Come on. I want, I, I want that, I, that yeah, gratitude guy and that nice <laughs> woman first. <laughs> I love it. I do want, I would love to get Heidi. Fleiss. Heidi so would be a great, Heidi's a great interview. 
Oh my God. Do you have her? I wish you had her information. I have no idea, but you could probably, I'll bet she's repped. You could, I'll bet Heidi Weiss has an agent. Just go on IMDb. She's got an agent. I I heard that she lives in a chicken, in a a chicken coop in the middle of God knows where. Well, no, she lives in Pahrump, Nevada. And um, yeah. And her neighbor, she moved, she, she accidentally, this is so Heidi. She accidentally moved next to like, just like was moving there the oldest hooker in Nevada and the oldest hooker in Nevada runs a bird sanctuary and had chickens right. and everything. And Heidi, and she, <laughs> she was dying. And Heidi is like, Heidi's everybody's Jewish mother. I mean, like that's to be, to do her job, you kind of yes, got to have the right, you got to have those skills kind of thing. So you can see yeah. that. And so literally like when I was trying to do my article with Heidi, she was freaking out because like she's trying to care for the dying hooker next door and the 10,000 birds and she doesn't know anything about animals. That was part of like, yeah. So, Oh no, my God, that's funny. She's, she's, she's a big hearted, really interesting um, woman. And uh, you know, I, people don't talk about this, but like there's peak performance, there's peak performance, there's peak, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah, I, I, I got a chance recently to interview uh Remy Adelke, who is a uh, former uh, shot caller, street gang shot caller. Then he became a U.S. Navy SEAL. Then he became a uh, actor. And now he's directing and writing in Hollywood. I mean, like he had the full arc. But we were talking about it. I was like, people don't talk about it. I wanted to know about skill transference from the street into the SEALs. Yeah. And he was like, nobody asked me those questions. I was like, that's, I like, I grew up around drug dealers. I knew drug dealers. It's, this is not an easy job. It's a right. really damn hard job and um, scary under bad conditions and a lot of risk and blah, blah, blah. And you can dislike the job. You could say it's illegal. You can say it's wrong, but it's hard. And some people are better at it and some people are worse at it. And that's performance skills. And I'm just interested. Yeah. I don't care. Absolutely you know I mean? agree. Like, totally. I've got that journalist thing. I can park my morality at the door for a couple hours and, and oh, yeah. hear you out, you know? Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I would be, I would love to uh, listen to that interview. I'm curious it's to hear right. what he says. Uh, if you go to the Flow Research Collective, we have a podcast, Flow Research Collective Radio, right. um, and it's uh, Remy Adelke. It's, uh, it's one of our podcasts that we did. It's, so tell, so, just so people can find you, tell yeah, them where they can find, find you. And- you can find the book, theartimpossible.com is the book. We talked about the passion recipe. So passionrecipe.com. Here's something else for your listeners. We talked about flow. We didn't talk about how they can get more of it, but flowblocker.com. So there are six major blockers that stand between people and more flow. Everybody usually has one that they're guilty of more than anything. And we built the diagnostic around it and that's free too. Um, you know, that's what I want you to come back on and talk. We're going to have a whole podcast about this flow stuff for sure. Yes. Yes, we will. Yes. And well, we're going to have a awesome. whole podcast about this flow stuff in your pink boxing <laughs> gloves because I got questions. That is a deal, Stephen. Right. That's perfect. The book is called The Art of Impossible. Stephen Kotler. It's out now because by the time it's, this podcast comes out. And um, you've been great. Thank you so much for coming on Habits Thank and Hustle. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.